people are critical about marriage and they are standoffish, but it's good to realize that marriage simply lifts out of the actual love between man and woman, and in a certain way, marriage is in the sexual act already. I'm yours, you're mine, period. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné, and today I'm joined by a former colleague, uh, Dr. Mikhail Waldstein, uh, who uh, taught at Ave Maria University for, uh, I think, over a decade, and who is now a professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. Um, delighted to have you on the show. Thanks. Thanks so much. And we're here today to talk about uh, Dr. Waldstein's uh, brand new book, right? Uh, the Glory of the Logos in the Flesh, uh, St. John Paul's Theology of the Body, uh, that was just published with Sapientia Press of Ave Maria University. So thanks again for being on our show. And I'd love to start kind of maybe just with kind of two uh, somewhat uh, pointed questions. Very good. Uh, so uh, the first question, uh, do we really need another book on John Paul II's Theology of the Body? There are lots of books on the theology of the body. Most of them, with few exceptions, are popularizations, mm -hmm. which are important. I'm close friends with Christopher West, who I think does, on the whole, an excellent job on that. That's needed. But what's also needed is a thorough scholarly account mm. of what goes on in the theology of the body. And I do that in three steps. In the third part of the book, I give a map of the theology of the body, mm -hmm. the division of the text, how the argument flows. I summarize each paragraph and then explain how they hang together. It's very easy to get lost in the <laughs> uh, theology of the body. Yes, yeah, I'll bet. Many people experience it. Then the part before that, I look at all of what he was writings before he wrote the theology of the body to be clear about the kinds of questions that interested him. Mm -hmm. And in the in the first part of the whole book, that is the third part from the end, I lay out these same questions earlier in the tradition. We're looking at Plato, at Aristotle, at Luther, mm -hmm. at uh, William of Ockham. These are not new issues. The root issues are old. They mm -hmm. regard the relation between reason and power. We live in an age where power over nature is big. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think that's a good that's a good uh, good defense of an, uh, we need another book. And I, I, I think so many people have found uh, the theology of the body uh, helpful uh, that I think your work can really go a long way to helping people kind of discover right the roots of it within the tradition. Um, maybe, you know, one other just kind of like big question uh, that I think often people have, even when they hear about the theology of the body, uh, which is. You know, it, it seems, I mean, a lot of people, I think, have a hard time understanding, right, the church's teaching on sexuality. Um, and it appears to certainly many people today, right, that, you know, I mean, why is the church so kind of strict about sex? What would you say? The thing in Christian life is love. The way St. Augustine summarizes Christian ethics is by saying, love and then do what you want. Mm -hmm. 
But the first part is radical, because the example we have is the example of Jesus. Love one another as I have loved you. Hmm. There's, it's radical, but beautiful at the same time. Um, I know that many people experience the church's teaching as irksome, mm-hmm. but where Tiwa was interested from the beginning, he tells about an, an experience he had early on as a priest, where he fell in love with love between man and woman, and says that his whole ministry is organized around that. Because love that's radical is beautiful. Mm. It has a strictness about it, okay, but it's beautiful. It's desirable. Mm-hmm. I think I remember being at a lecture that you gave maybe in 2005 uh, when you had done a translation of John Paul II's Theology of the Body and had published a new version of it. Uh, and and I recall there maybe you telling a part that same story in a similar way, but um, I'm trying to remember, how did you put it? You put it something like that uh, he discovered in working with young people in his work as a university of chaplain, uh, I think it was at uh, University of Krakow and University of Lublin in Poland. And of course, this was during the time of the Soviet occupation, right, right after World War II. Uh, and, he, and he wanted to kind of like defend fair love, right? That's exactly the same passage. Oh, it's wow. Easy, it's easy to find in his book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, an autobiographical work, mm-hmm. page one, two, three, <laughs> to remember. And there he says that he fell in love with human love because love is fair, it's beautiful. Wow. And at root, what people want is not just any love, but a love that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of love comes from its radical character that one doesn't cut corners, uh, I love you uh, up to that degree, and then Mm -hmm. we'll leave off. Um, The beauty of love collapses. It has to do with a kind of totality of gift. That's one of the root issues. Men and women say to each other, I take you until death. They take their whole life into their hands and give it. Hmm. That's, that's a, it's a fantastic, fantastically radical, daring. It's a bit reminiscent of swimming down the Niagara Falls, <laughs> <laughs> which has always fascinated me. Many people are fascinated. I've, I'm not tempted to do it. That's good. <laughs> We're glad. We're glad. Um, you know, it, it's the, the way you describe that. Um, It's interesting, even kind of in today, where I think a lot of people in our culture, uh, I wouldn't say they're post-marriage, but marriage is not the obvious, um, marriage is not obviously connected to sexual uh, actions or sexual relationships. And yet still, it seems that all the best songs, all the most popular songs uh, by, you know, artists these days are about breakups or about somehow like unrequited love that that there's almost something in the very nature of human love that calls for a kind of permanence and when it's broken uh it's like part of the human heart just cries out and says right this is like i don't know that this is wrong like somehow we're meant 
to, to, to give each other to each other totally. Yeah. Right. It seems to me that you're right. People are critical about marriage and they are standoffish about marriage, but it's good to realize that marriage simply lifts out of mm. the actual love between man and woman and the total physical self-giving that happens in sex and say yes to it. That is, in a certain way, marriage is in the sexual act already. Mm. I'm yours, you're mine, period, in absence. If I say, you, you're, I'm yours for the next 14 days, and then we'll stop, mm-hmm. or I'll stop when I no longer feel as passionate about you, then exactly the pains that you mm-hmm. mention show up, which shows that the desire at the root of that love, even if there's no marriage, is in fact marital. Wow. Wow. That's really beautiful. So marriage isn't an imposition on, you know, uh, kind of free sexual activity. Um, Marriage is kind of, you know, the cultural and really revealed support that kind of opens up what is present. Maybe, you know, I think you mentioned in your book something like the difference between animals eat, but human beings dine. Right. Right. Um, animals mate, but human beings kind of, you know, we, we make love. Yeah, exactly. We mate with words. We mate with love. We, so we marry and, and marriage is kind of the way of expressing that love publicly. Right. And as, as, as somebody put it one time, I remember hearing uh, that, um, you know, marriage is basically public sex, right? You're telling everyone that we're going to have sex and then we're going to be responsible for these children. Very good. I think that's excellent. Um, the public ceremony mm-hmm. is not needed when you are alone and there is nobody near. For example, mm-hmm. Stalin exported many Greek Catholics especially, also Roman Catholics, to Siberia, just dropped them off in the middle of nowhere. And there they were, without anybody, Mm -hmm. without any priest, without a large community, often isolated as as individuals. In that case, marriage begins with sex. Mm -hmm. But you're right, we have a responsibility before our friends, our parents, the larger community. The first time a man brings the woman he loves to his parents' home is very significant because it's, and it belongs to the love. It, it's not, it's, it's part of the growth mm-hmm. of the love. Yeah. That it's not just between us. This is, this is something for my parents, for my yeah. cousins, for my mm-hmm. friends. That's great. Um, before we talk a little bit more about some of the arguments in the book or the discussions, uh, would you just you know t- uh, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in uh, writing? I went for the last 20, 25 years yeah. on the Pope's theology of the body, Pope John Paul II. My first love in theology is the Gospel of John. Hmm. That's what I wanted to study since junior year in high school. And I wanted to study philosophy first. My father suggested that. 
because interpretation of text usually depends on one's philosophical principles. In that study of philosophy with a group of professors at the University of Dallas, students of Dietrich von Hildebrand, we read Person and Act, the acting person as it's also called in English, and some other writings of Wittuba, and they fascinated me. I saw them as related, in fact, to Gospel of John. But then I went to Rome, to the Biblicum, and studied Gospel of John, then taught at the University of Notre Dame, mainly scripture. Mm -hmm. I was in the Great Books program, so I also taught Plato and Aristotle and so on. And then suddenly came the call by Cardinal Schönborn to set up a institute that would deal specifically with marriage and base itself on the theology of the body in Austria. So that was a decision to make. Do I want mm -hmm. to do that? And yes, it fits, I think. The book that I wrote is called Glory of the Logos in the Flesh, which is a quote from the Gospel of John. The word became flesh, pitched his tent among us, and we've seen his glory. glory. Yeah. Glory is a maximum of beauty, kind of the superlative of beauty. And that's exactly John Paul's intuition about love between man and woman, that it reflects the love of Christ for us, that it mm. have a similar atmosphere. Of course, the love of Christ for us is not a sexual love, but it has a radical character. Once for all, he gave himself. And there's something, something glorious about that. Yeah. Well, and it's also, it's fascinating, right? If that's John 1, right. the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory. John 2, right? You have his glory as manifested in the wedding at Cana yeah. of all the strange, I mean, like it's, it's, it's so, um, I think somebody who's not familiar with the Christian understanding would think it was a badly written book. Right. Right. Um, and the wedding so. of Cana, when you look at it, in fact, one of our students, yes. Jeremy Johnson, mm -hmm. showed me this. The wedding at Cana is constructed as a scene step by step, exactly like Golgotha. So the two scenes belong together. Yeah. They are, in a certain way, you have to, the joy of a wedding has to be projected into Golgotha. And one has to be realistic about the joy of marriage. <laughs> Many people yes. read the first chapter of the theology of the body, which is a paradise. Mm. And they think, oh, gee, John Paul has a very rosy picture mm -hmm. of, of what, so human happiness lies, what? In marriage and sexual love between man and woman? No, it doesn't. Mm. It's a great thing, but we are made for God and not for each other. It's part of the journey. Some people compare marriage to pilgrim's bread that you eat on the way mm -hmm. to the end of the pilgrimage. Pilgrim's bread is usually a bit hard, has to be light. It's not so terribly, it's, it's good, it's mm -hmm. nourishing. But the meal at the end is the big thing. Wow, that's kind of, it's, it's interesting too, as if you think about the wedding at Cana and John, um, right, the, you know, the gift of marriage, uh, the celebration of marriage, uh, Jesus blessing the marriage through uh, 
Mary's intercession. Um, it's interesting because in some ways, Genesis, Genesis 1 is on in the beginning, right? God created the heavens and the earth. In John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word becomes flesh. We see his glory. In Genesis 2, you have really the wedding of Adam and Eve, right? Um, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And then in John 2, you have that. So the, the wedding at Cana, in a way, goes back to Genesis. Very good. And also points, though, to right the kind of wedding of Christ and his church. In the right? relation at the very yeah, end. Yeah. In fact, you can say at the very beginning, it's a discussion of marriage with Adam and Eve. At the very end is the wedding of the Lamb. Right in the middle is the Song of Songs, usually in most editions of the Bible. Wow. Right in the middle. But mm -hmm. the other connections yeah. that you showed are there too. And what's so, the Song of Songs maybe for listeners who aren't, aren't quite familiar? Song of Songs is a series of love poetry, and it ends in a remarkable way. After the man says to the woman, you are garden locked and a fountain sealed, which John Paul interprets as the man's recognition that she is the master of her mystery. Hmm. What's interior to her, both physically, her vagina, but also spiritually, she is the master of it. The man can't simply walk into the garden. He has to hmm. recognize her authority over herself and receive what he receives as a gift. After that, she says, a couple of, um, a little bit later, set to the man, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm, because love is strong as death. The strength of love mm -hmm. as death, death gets everything. Mm -hmm. Death is very strong, there's nobody resisting yeah. death. So she wants him to set her as a seal, and, and, and a seal is expresses ownership and closure. You put it on the letter to close it. Mm -hmm. On your heart, inside, on your arm, on the outside. That's a total gift on her part to mm -hmm. be taken as a seal like that. But it's also a claim on the man that you're mine, period. Wow. That's the great beauty of love. Mm -hmm. I think what happens in our culture is we are so, um, we are superficial ab about those things. We are satisfied with pleasure, sexual pleasure, and tend to suppress the fact that much more than pleasure goes on in sex. Mm -hmm. That in fact, it's a deep union of person, which is why people are hurt when they're abandoned afterwards. Yeah. If you go have a, somebody serves you a nice meal, it's very pleasant. And then you don't go there to the restaurant again. Nobody will be insulted. Mm. If you derive pleasure from a particular partner sexually, and then you stop, it's very different. A, a deep bond has been, well, has been created. And, and, and in part there, I mean, if you think about that, the beginning, so God to a certain extent, right, creates the universe and creates us. We have a kind of meaning and purpose uh, that that is, you know, 
It's like that we can't discover without recognizing some kind of higher power, some kind of first mover, some kind of um, meaning and purpose beyond this life that, you know, as Aquinas will say, and, you know, we ever, you know, which we call God. Um, and, and we see this. So it's almost as though, you know, God is kind of somewhat in covenant marriage with his creation. Exactly. And I forgot. So, to- yeah. So then his creation marries. We marry each other because we were created by a God who wants to marry us. That's great. And I should have mentioned that, in Mm. fact, in the specific answer to the question you asked, one important concept in the theology of the body is what John Paul calls the mystery of creation, which for him contains three truths. God in himself is a radical love. He creates us out of love and for love. The covenant he makes with us is an expression of the radical character of the Trinity. God doesn't take Hmm. the gift of everything to the Son. The Father doesn't take back anything of that. That's definitive. The covenant imitates the Trinity. Marriage imitates the covenant. And what's most precious in all Mm -hmm. of them is the radical character of love. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because I think really it is that experience of human love that is often what is most, um, you know, it's what's most kind of meaningful uh, in in most people's lives. You know, what what it's it's those experiences of love um, that, and and it's it's interesting that I think even when we do great things which we still want to do, right? You know, you want to maybe build something great. You want to go um, on a great adventure, you know, do something. And yet often, what's the first thing we want to do when we've done something like that? We want to go tell someone we love, yeah. you know? Um, and so, Communicate. yeah. And, 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 you know, and maybe that's just, you know, uh, right, right before we take a little break, maybe you could just say a little bit, what do you, you mentioned that, you know, people kind of almost, you know, you have John Paul II wanting to defend the beauty of fair love. And, you know, why is it that, you know, in, in your experience as, te- as a teacher, you know, as, as a scholar, what have you seen that makes it hard for people to kind of really see the beauty of human love? It's hard for them if they're addicted to so-called more or less recreative sex, Hmm. sex as something that gives you pleasure for a while and then you turn away from it. And that's, if you're addicted to that, then the idea of a total commitment Hmm. in which you take your whole life in your hands and say, it's yours, Hmm. is scary. It seems like a limitation on the enjoyment of what they enjoy most. But it's not hard for most people to penetrate through to another level and to realize, but wait a second, what somebody who's in pursuit of momentary sexual pleasure wants is impossible. There is no such thing as recreational sex. It's always deeper. Hmm. When people eat together, beautiful company, expression of friendship, etc. If there are some troubles in that, okay, if you don't have dinner anymore with somebody, they might be insulted, but a broken relationship that starts sexual is is a 
suffering at the at the core of the heart. Yeah, it's and it's, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned fear there. Um, you mentioned one kind of fear, um, but it seems to me there's a lot of fear involved that um, I think a lot of people are afraid that they're going to be abandoned. Right. Um, there's not only right. sensual pleasure, but there's a lot of sentimental um, meaning that gets associated. And so there's a deep, there can be deep fear of abandonment or a deep fear that I'm not ready. Uh, and I think that fear often kind of makes, I don't know how to put it. I think it sometimes paralyzes Excellent. a lot of people. And there one should realize that it is a superficial dream to think that a marriage can be sustained by the same type of emotion that's there at the very beginning when people sure. fall in love. Yeah. In every marriage, there come moments where that seems to evaporate mm -hmm. and therefore the sexual relation itself suffers mm -hmm. from it. But that has, the masters of the spiritual life say, consolation and desolation are a necessary rhythm. Yeah. If you stay in desolation with the beloved, almost invariably there's a new spring that springs up and people deprive themselves of it if they think, oh, no, well, it's failed. Yeah. So well, I think the new- Let's get a divorce. Yeah, the new spring after the winter is a great, uh, a, a great moment uh, to think about and uh, yeah. to pause for a minute. So let's, let's take a break and we'll come back. Good. listening to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. So John Paul II really wrote the theology of the body, right, as a series of general audiences, uh, right, in the early 1980s. In many ways, during that time, there was a lot of confusion in the church uh, about, right, the role of artificial contraception, um, Paul VI uh, encyclical Humanae Vitae uh, had been uh, really rejected by many theologians, uh, even many bishops. And so how could you, like, how, tell us a little bit about that. What, what, what really kind of maybe is at the heart of, uh, right, the teaching of the church um, in Humanae Vitae? And, and how does John Paul II help us to understand it? He ended up um, making it a series of audiences. He had written it as a book that had been completed before he became Pope. Oh, wow. And he wanted to publish it as a book when mm -hmm. he became Pope. And then the curia told him, Popes don't publish books. <laughs> At that point, he still obeyed them. And mm -hmm. later he wrote books. But so he chopped the book into 20 minute pieces and delivered them as, as audiences, which is just an external thing. That's partly what makes it difficult to read because the book in its original version in Polish mm -hmm. has detailed headings as most modern books do, divisions into chapters, into sections, subsections. Yeah. All of that disappeared when he published the, that is when he delivered the audiences. Mm -hmm. They were just 20 minute chunks, which then as usual with audiences were bound between two covers. Mm -hmm. So 
it seemed impossible to find one's way through it. Why is he saying this here and, and that there? But now to the substance of your question of, of humana vitae. Our age is an age of technology and of progress. The beginning of that massive progress, and it's really been astonishing, if you just think of physics, the amount of knowledge gathered in physics is absolutely stupendous. So it's been very successful. But the beginning was the attempt to gain power over nature in order to improve the human condition. Uh, uh, if you have a disease and you need medicine to kill off the bugs, yeah, you take penicillin and that's mm -hmm. a fantastic invention. The world changed really radically when, when penicillin came along and the other antibiotics. The pill came along as one of these, as part of progress. It was invented by initially by a Catholic doctor, researcher. During the council, Cardinal Kunens, when the topic of the pill came up, said to his brother bishops, the church doesn't need a second Galileo case. Mm. The first one was enough. It was interesting that it was particularly clerics, theologians, not married people so much, who resisted to Manevite because they thought that the aggiornamento of Vatican II would have to include, above all, joining finally this program of progress and power over nature, which the mm. church apparently missed when they rejected Galileo, similarly with Copernicus. Um, so the, the pill was a symbol of science, progress, power over nature. Doctors in white coats mm -hmm. gave it to you, not some sex shop around the corner. Um, ascent to the pill seemed to many theologians a little bit like finally gaining the green card to work in the land of modernity. <laughs> so it wasn't for many actually the problem of needing to abstain from sexual intercourse for a while in order to avoid having children if it wasn't the right moment. Um, of course, it struck many Catholic couples also as difficult to abstain. Um, there's now a movement of spreading the theology of the body, its beauty, and the experience of many people in that movement is that when you actually follow humana vitae, you experience a new freedom and a new beauty in the relationship. Mm -hmm. It tends to deepen. It doesn't ruin marriages. It, uh, if it's approached in the right way, natural family planning can really deepen marriage. So I would say that the reaction was strangely clerical and theological to begin with. Mm -hmm. Those were the people who were upset. And couples were relatively less upset. They became upset. But now it's turning out in their experience, it, it's quite the opposite. Wow. 
you know, perhaps you could say a little bit more. I think some people have the idea that um, the church is teaching about or, you know, on limiting, um, you know, a contraception uh, within the Marriage Act uh, as focused on having children or, you know, focused on the procreative end of marriage. Um, and sometimes see this as like opposed to seeing marriage as a loving communion. Excellent. Um, how would you how would you address that question? That marriage is both. Um, if the procreation of a child is done in love, it's the right way for a child to come to be. Mm. It's procreation rather than merely generation. Animals generate, but they don't procreate. It's, mm. it's like the eating dining mm -hmm. difference. Procreating is, is, is the human way of doing it. And a child who has been, who comes into being willed by the love of God, by the God who is love, should be received in a moment, in an environment of love. That's the appropriate. So the unity. Can you procreate without love? You can rape somebody. Hmm. Oh, excuse me. Then it wouldn't be procreate. So, You're quite right. Okay. So you can reproduce you can without reproduce love, without but love. but true procreation, as you're describing it, is really kind of imitating the love of God within the love between a man and a woman. Exactly. Is, is that what you're? Exactly. Oh. So if you invite somebody for dinner, and they snatch their plate from the table and run off into a little corner mm -hmm. and wolf the thing down. They're not dining with you. Mm -hmm. They're eating with you. That's okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they're not, it's not dining. Yeah. So, because it seems that one of the things that uh, my understanding of Humanae Vitae is that it talks about that there are two ends of right. marriage, a procreative, which means a childbearing, and a unitive marriage, which would be kind of love. Um, and it seems that as soon as you introduce there are two ends a procreative and a unitive one, it sounds as though you've separated them. And I, and um, how do you address this in your book? Yeah, that they, John Paul, the way John Paul puts it is, they come to be through each other. Oh, is, wow. Through being unitive, that the sexual act is procreative in the fully human sense. Mm. And it's through being procreative, that it's unitive in a particular way. Um, people, that's a part of the argument that's, that many people don't understand. Uh, that some get very angry about it hmm. because they take it to mean if you take contraceptives, affection between husband and wife will shut off as if you go into the cellar of a house hmm. and you turn off the main electricity switch. Well, all the lights go off. That's clearly not the case. Mm -hmm. um, if kissing, holding hands, hugging, stroking, etc., can be expressions of union between a man and a woman, all the more so sexual intercourse. But sexual intercourse is the only kind of act that, that can bring about a particular form of union between a man and a woman. That's absolutely unique. It's only in that act that a man and a woman can say to each other, it's with you that I want children mm. because I love you. That's mm -hmm. another kind of union of love 
a very specific union of love that's tied to the procreative meaning. I noticed in your book you mentioned uh, this language of procreatively unitive and unitively procreative. And I thought that was a a nice way of trying to express that. And, And I think also we often think about procreation as kind of simply starting the life of a new person. So, you know, and, and, but, but you were, am I correct that you are suggesting that we should think about procreation as including the, not only the begetting, but also the raising and education of children? Yeah. In, In fact, on both ends, even before the act, our genitals are generative organs, whether we use them for that purpose or not. It's not a question of result. It's a question of nature. The act of sexual union between man and woman not always leads to a child. Mm-hmm. To call it procreative is not to name the result, but to name the nature of the act. Uh, an example might help if you say, look at me, and I say, okay, <laughs> and I'm looking at you. You say, I'm looking at you, and I go like this. Am I looking at you? Mm-hmm. Clearly not, because I prevent, I myself prevent the outcome. Mm-hmm. It's similar with the difference between actual family planning and contraception. Say somebody turns off the lights and you say, look at me and I look at you, but I can't see you. I'm still looking because it's not I myself who would destroy the possibility of seeing you. Mm-hmm. In contraception, it's the couple himself, the man and the woman themselves who prevent the outcome. In natural family planning, that's not the case. No child will be conceived if they do it in the right way. It's important, therefore, to focus on the individual act. There is, of course, also the problem of an openness to children in a broader way, in a general way. So different kinds of moral problems arise in natural family planning. Are we generous enough with with openness to children? That's, That's one moral question. The other moral question is, do we take, do we cultivate the unity between the two of us sufficiently by coming together sexually? Or are we abstaining mm. too much? Are we hurting? Yeah. So this question of generosity becomes, you know, an interesting aspect, both perhaps in terms of both ends, right? The procreative and the right. unitive in terms of how do I move out of kind of the cage of my own ego and into Very good. Uh, love? Uh, you know, it's interesting when you put it that way, because the way you're describing it, it almost seems like there's this kind of unity to the goodness of marriage that's almost like inscribed in creation. Very good. Um, and, and maybe one thing that we've done in, at least seems to be when I just kind of think about maybe, you know, my own experience growing up, uh, my own confusion or different things like that. And I think things that I've observed is it's a little bit like we put tremendous burdens on people because first I think people discover that they are sexual beings Uh, with sexual desires and then sexual activity and then maybe if they're kind of 
courageous enough, maybe they could become married, and then maybe they could have children. But I think a lot of people, it's like, you know, but you kind of feel like, well, I don't know. You're like, maybe I'm called to sex, but I don't know if I'm called to marriage because I'm probably not that good of a person. You know, and then, oh, we're married, but I don't think either of us are ready to have children, right? And, uh, and, and, and to a certain extent, it puts a lot of stress on the person because in a certain sense, we're not ready. I mean, I don't know. How to, that's part of the, like, but I think in a way, what I hear you saying is this idea that if we think about it as there's this kind of unity to sex, marriage, and children, then it's kind of like if I'm a sexual being, then I can kind of see that, oh, I'm also the kind of being that can get married and I'm also the kind of being that could become a mother and a father. So that it's kind of like in a way, almost like the church is blessing you and saying, you know, you are ready to become a husband. You are ready to become a father. Um, and and it's and and I don't that's that's that would be such a beautiful thing. I think when I began to hear that as a young man. You know, um, I, I mean, that, that I think meant a lot to me. And I, it's kind of an interesting way of, of, of discovering this kind of, not this, you need to do this, but you do have within yourself the strength yes. to be a mother or yes. a father or and a husband. It's and, great, a, you know. and it's right to have that strength if at the same time you realize that pain is coming. Mm. That Christian life always has to do also with suffering. To expect a marriage that stays on the giddy, delicious <laughs> stage of being in love all the time, you'll be disappointed. But there's something profoundly good even about periods of coldness and strangeness, estrangement in a way between husband and wife, it's as if, if you then stay with the other, mm. the love drives, is driven deeper into mm. your heart. It's been my experience, the experience of many people, that then afterwards a spring comes. Yeah. That's, that's it's interesting, I heard somewhere beautiful. in uh, Florida, they have a lot of golf courses, and I heard that actually if you overwater the fairways, which makes it look very green all the time. The problem is the roots don't go deep and it ends up burning up. And you actually have to yeah. occasionally have periods where it dries out enough that the roots go deeper. And so, you know, we see this kind of, it's prince, it's true on the natural level. It's true on the, you know, uh, supernatural. I think in a lot of ways, when people see the theology of the body, uh, there's a sense that my body matters uh, and my body is not matter alone, but my body in a certain sense, what it's kind of saying is matter matters. Yeah. That my body has meaning and purpose and allows me to genuinely express uh, myself. Now, if, if we do have this kind of beautiful unity in a way that you've described between sex and marriage and procreation and not just, but like, and the education and raising of children and, right, which means, right, you know, through all the suffering that may uh, encounter and all these different elements, um, then I, I'm, I, I feel like, what about like all the people though that, I don't know, that like either can't find a spouse or people that find a spouse and can't have children? Yeah. Um, what does the theology of the body say to, I don't know how to put it, like, you know, to kind of, you know, to singles 
uh, who want to get married who can't, or perhaps people that have been abandoned by spouses, or again, so many you know couples who struggle with the pain of infertility. There, it's important to really internalize that as human beings, we are made for infinitely more mm. than marriage. Marriage is a wow. great thing. And if one gets the impression from the theology of the body that it's the summit of happiness, it's a disastrous mistake. Really? If, say more, say more. If you overtax marriage that way, first of all, you shortchange yourself. The human mm. heart always has longings that are, that are greater, not only characteristically in men, the attraction to other women, sometimes, not as frequently in the case in women, but our heart has longings for happiness that's mm. much deeper. We're made for God, mm. not for marriage. Wow, so how does the theology of the body then help us see that we're made for God? In its most interesting third chapter of part one, the, the three chapters of part one are beginning, what teachers teaches about the beginning of the human race. And then the second chapter, what, what, teaches, what Jesus teaches about the human race. Now, mm -hmm. where we are tempted, where love is fragile, mm -hmm. what do we do with that? Where he insists we have to have courage because we're redeemed. Fear is not the main wow. way of approaching it, but courage. Go ahead. It's better to go ahead with courage and make a mistake than mm -hmm. stick back in fear. The third part is about the resurrection where Jesus says, there won't be any marriage anymore. And he goes into detail why that's so and what the relation between man and woman would be like if it's no longer sexual. And it's a fascinating chapter because mm -hmm. there you it, it brings out the greatness of the goal for which we're made and if we make marriage into that, we make an idol of it. Interesting. Now, um, it also occurs to me that, um, you know, one of the heroes of the Christian tradition, right, Jesus Christ, right. Um, didn't get married and is, right. is a virgin. Right. Uh, so how does Jesus live the theology of the body? You're right. In fact, in the theology, in John Paul's book, the idea of virginity is like the book ends of the whole argument. When he comes for the first time mm -hmm. to talk about the act of sexual union, he says, one of the first things he says about that act is that in it, you have to experience the original virginal value of being human. And I take that to mean, if virginity means not having had sex yet, that is, if you look at the meaning, not yet having given yourself to somebody in that way, not belonging to somebody else, you belong to yourself and to God alone. That's that's virginity. Wow. At the very yeah. end, it'll be similar. You belong to God so totally hmm. that you won't belong to somebody else in that other way. There'll still be the communion of saints, that is communication of mm -hmm. communion with God, but not in the same way. On the journey, mm -hmm. the belonging is... it holds you to it and, mm -hmm. and that's right but it holds you to it as a pilgrim is held on the road wow. not so we do have that calling right as creatures right that we're really made in love by god first and we find our meaning and happiness 
uh, first and foremost in, in loving God. It always reminds me a little Perfect bit of, summary. Of, of what Fulton Sheen says when he says, right, it takes uh, three to get married, right? You know, we need to have God um, as the as, as our foundation. Um, you know, one, I, I did want to, I do think there's something about the theology of the body that is, is kind of beautiful. And I think a lot of people experience as somewhat attractive. And I think a lot of people also experience it as, I'm not worthy of that um, because either I'm not good enough or because I, so many people today have a lot of wounds from their sexual um, histories um, and, you know, perhaps have, you know, either wounded themselves, wounded others, been wounded by other people. Does the theology of the body, right, say anything about people who struggle and have been hurt? Much. Um, Many people only read chapter one of the theology of the body. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's in the second chapter when he talks about our present situation Mm -hmm. in which we're subject to sin, that is, to insufficiently radical love. Because all of Christian ethics is about love and then do what you want. Mm. So if we experience insufficient love, either done to us or we do it to somebody. Mm-hmm. The second chapter deals frontally with that, that we are redeemed, that therefore a failure of love should not lead us into despondency, mm-hmm. but redemption should give us the courage wow. to go on ahead. It's almost that you know we could say that Jesus loves sinners. Yeah. Right. You know, and and part of the theology of the body is to recognize that to which we're called, but also to recognize where we've fallen short. Right. um, And to kind of say that, you know, uh, you know, Lord, I, I need your help. I need your mercy. It's not like this is not a I don't know, but it's it's not like a recipe, um, you know, that if you don't follow it perfectly, you you fail the cooking test. It's more a call which both shows a path to happiness but also um, kind of helps us to recognize where are times when I've been insufficient, um, inadequate, and, and then begin to maybe see that not only does Jesus have mercy on sinners, right, but that I'm also, I'm also a sinner, right? I'm in need of healing. Everybody, even marriages that work out well on the whole have to carry the cross mm-hmm. and have to admit that sin has crept in. But then comes where the real act of faith that, that Luther was so concerned about, that you entrust yourself to the person of Jesus in such a way that you are sure that it's really and radically taken care of. Mm. You can put it behind yourself. Mm. You can forgive the other because he has forgiven you totally. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting that John Paul II, I mean, it's so much, such a great hero uh, in so many ways. But, you know, if you were to, one thing would be maybe his theology of the body on marriage and sexuality. And the second one would be his uh, love of divine mercy. Right. Divine Mercy Sunday, we celebrate, um, you know, a- after. The, after, after Easter, and and that idea that yeah, that the theology body is really that manifestation that God's mercy is shown to us bodily Very in good. His gift of Himself. Um, you know, as as we close, I would like to ask you uh, three questions, if, if if you're willing. 
first even four okay that would be great. um uh first just you know what, what are what's what's a book you've been reading lately Schürmann on a wonderful german exegete mm -hmm. on jesus's understanding of his own death as a way of i'm returning to studying the gospel of john when i was finished with the theology of the Hardy book i was exhausted <laughs> And it took me a couple yes. of months. For people who haven't uh, seen this, is um, what do you have here? I think it's 800 pages. And before you get to the index, it's about, what, 777 or something. I so I would make it a size for I could use it for self-defense. And <laughs> well, well, what a gift. But that's beautiful. You're, you're getting back to reading about the Gospel and of John. Suddenly, it was like a volcano poof, coming up. Mm. Uh, now I want to return to the Gospel of John, and with the questions John mm -hmm. Paul made me aware of, approach the Gospel of John. That's, that's the next project. That's great. So that uh, was one question. Yeah, second question. Um, what are some daily practices that you find right helpful to find meaning and purpose in your life? Morning offering. Hmm. And what does that mean? If That is you... Well, in some way, it's a little bit like a marriage vow. Hmm. In the morning, you say about the whole day, even if you forget it during the day, I want to be yours. I want to be yours radically. It might be forgotten, but human beings have the power to make, hmm. to take a day in hand and say it's for you. Then um, daily mass was a practice my parents had and passed on to us. And we did it with all of our eight children, hmm. despite all the noise and commotion that that created in church. People were often upset with it. <laughs> but the Eucharist is the great gift. So daily mass is a, is a fantastic practice. And the children, it became, particularly for me as father and them, a time of tenderness. Um, another aspect to, I don't count them, but to say both to my wife and to my children several times a day, mm. I love you and accompany it with some kind of gesture. Mm. Um, we are evanescent, disappearing being. It's very easy for us to evaporate in our life. So to keep up the intensity of life, consciously, this is one way that you say, I love you. Well, you told me yesterday you love me, so mm -hmm. you don't need to tell me today. Oh, that's yeah, beautiful. You don't need to tell yeah. today. Yeah, and, and last question. Um, what's a false belief you had about God, and um, how did you come to discover the truth or a deeper understanding of, of, of who God is? As a child, I was told God is in heaven. And I asked, well, where is heaven? Oh, it's far, far up there. So I thought of God as, yeah, there, but far away. Mm -hmm. One of the most startling discoveries for me was in reading St. Thomas Aquinas on the Book of Causes, of all things, a pagan treatise. Mm -hmm which says that the first cause is closer to the final effect 
than any other cause is. Mm-hmm. So if I push something, the causality of God is nearer to the effect of the table moving than my hand is. Wow. That was a revolution for me mm-hmm. and an absolutely necessary one. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time on our show. Uh, for folks who are interested in maybe buying the book or, or giving it as a gift to uh, maybe a seminarian or a priest or a, a student of theology, um, how can they find more about the book? They can buy it on Amazon. If they wish, they can send it to me post-paid. Hmm. I'll be glad to sign it mm-hmm. if that adds anything to it wow. yeah. so that's delightful and i think it's also uh it is published by sapiencia press of ave maria university uh so you can uh, also uh, find that link from the ave maria.edu website uh it's also um sapiencia press is published uh, through catholic university of america press so you can also go to cuapress.org and uh, there you can find the book, Glory of the Logos in the Flesh, St. John Paul II's uh, Theology of the Body. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Waldstein, for being with us on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show.